Welcome, consumed listeners, to another season of the podcast that stokes candid conversations with California eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. And speaking of stoking, I'm stoked you're here. How California is that? This season, I spoke exclusively with women in the wine industry, and it was a transformative experience on my end. These are smart, accomplished, and dare I say, ballsy people I interviewed from diverse experiences, cultures, and walks of life. Oh, and I chatted with them outdoors to be COVID safe. Don't be surprised if you hear a lawnmower, barking dog, or wind chime in the breeze. This is my backyard. Welcome. I want to say something here about one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders, Rancho de Onaveros Wines in California's Santa Maria Valley. Vigneron James Onaveros is an example of a man who shares his platform with the women in his life, business, and industry, including me. He wrote a post on Instagram about the all-women crews that work at Rancho de Onaveros, and I wanted to share that with you. He wrote, There's a sense of detail and accuracy that I've always admired and appreciated out of our crew of ladies. The level of detail and care is unmistakably fantastic. In a business where every little detail adds up in the end to something superior, if done well, it truly matters. I'm always impressed and privileged with the results from this excellent team. Many thanks to Ranchos de Onaveros and James for his support of this podcast and the diversity of voices in the wine industry. For more information about Ranchos de Onaveros wines, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. Many thanks as well to Slow Life Magazine, the publication that puts the people of San Luis Obispo County in the spotlight. For my next food column in the magazine, I'm writing about rogue pizza makers. That's folks who make and sell their artisan pizzas through non-traditional channels, like from their home kitchen. It turns out there's a real trend here on the Central Coast of secret pizza people who use social media to promote and sell their stuff. Check out the next issue of Slow Life Magazine for more information or visit slowlifemagazine.com. Winemaker Nancy Uloa was my final interview for the eighth season of Consumed, and it was a pretty perfect season finale, I have to say. Nancy is the owner and sole operator of Uloa Cellars, a nascent wine brand based out of Paso Robles, California. Nancy is a Mexican immigrant, the first person in her family to attend and graduate from college, a survivor of domestic abuse, and in her own words, a butterfly who has discovered her most engaged and abundant self in the winemaking community. She talks here about her first vintage of Gruner Veltliner, the intimidation and empowerment of being able to choose when to pick, her interest in obscure white varietals, and how they absolutely belong on the table with Mexican food. And speaking of Mexican food, be sure to visit Nancy's episode page at letsgetconsumed.com for her mom's red pozole recipe. Okay, here's my talk with Nancy Uloa. Um, Nancy Uloa, thank you so much for coming and talking to me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited and humbled to be part of your uh, series. You just, I mean, the moment you walked up, you have this really long, what is the color of your hair? It's like... <laughs> it's so gorgeous. It's red, Thank but you. it's like a it's like a it's like a magenta red, you know, just <laughs> bright. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, and I love that. Thank but you, you have a very open face, and I can tell you're very cool. Um, this is the first time we've ever met, and I heard about you because Justin Trebu, who was on a couple seasons ago, 
texted me and said, you have got to meet this woman. Um, I think she used the word badass. And, <laughs> and I was like, what is her phone number? So we've been texting a little bit, and I'm just really curious to hear about your wine journey. So you, um, I know you said you're from the Bay Area, mm-hmm. but... Where were you born and raised? So I was born in Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lived there until I was 12. Um, and at that point, when I was 12, my dad decided to uh, to uh, migrate to the United States. Mm-hmm. So we moved uh, in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, so do the math. Um, <laughs> if you, you want to know how old I am. <laughs> um, and so when I moved to the States, I was living in Salinas. Yeah. Um, I went to middle school there. And then I went to high school in Hollister. Okay. Uh, so um, I lived in Hollister for about four years. And I moved to San Jose to go to college. So okay. that's how I ended up in the Bay Area. Right on. What mm-hmm. did you study in college? I studied so. Uh, sociology with a concentration in community change and a minor in philosophy. Oh, yeah. Lord. Wow. <laughs> what yeah. What were you like as a kid, you think, that drew you to major in something like that? Um, I think I always had the need of helping people. Mm. Like, it was not just, like, something that I that I, you know, wanted to do it, just like I felt that I had the need to uh, do something positive in people's lives. So uh, for me to choose a career path, I had to choose something that would, um, you know, bring me joy. And my dad would be, I remember when, you know, because I'm the first person in my family to go to college. Mm. uh, My dad was like, you need to study something like business or, you know, something that would give you, that is going to like bring you money. And I was like, but I don't want to do those things. I want to do something that's going to make me feel good about myself, helping um, other people who are in need, and um, just serving uh, a bigger purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I was listening to a radio show yesterday. I don't know how I ended up listening to it. A really, um, really famous man who talks about finances and helps people, you know, get out of debt and things like that. I don't ever really listen to him, um, but I happened to hear it yesterday, and he was talking about how people should not pursue their passion they should pursue financial stability and I uh, I think I come from a position of privilege where I got to do that for sure actually I don't think it I know it um, I was able to study I studied art history and music which is like, <laughs> I know we're laughing now if only my 18 year old self could hear us laughing um, but I uh, I don't know. I really struggle with someone saying, get a business degree, mm-hmm. get a, you know, become a doctor, an attorney, a CPA, whatever it is. I just, I think I would have shriveled up and died if I had yeah, had to do that. Definitely. And for me, I think that was also something that like kept me from pursuing something in that field because um, I didn't grow up with... Um, any kind of role model who would tell me that that's something that I needed to pursue. You know, I didn't see anyone in my family being a business owner. Mm. So I didn't see the need for me to like know how to run a business or, you know, how to manage people or anything like that. So for me, I like, you know, this was the first time in my life that I was going to make a choice that it was going to, um, defined who I was going to become and so I decided to go for that and honestly it was the best decision I made I you know I had so much experience with like running organizations and um and just working in the nonprofit field which was very um 
enlightening for me to be able to learn how to work with people and how to relate to people. And I think that's one of the things that no matter what field I work in, that's going to give me all the skills that I need to be able to um, make connections with people. It's always going to be about people. Yeah, definitely. I want to tell your dad right now, though. Okay, (laughs) you wanted her to get a business degree and now she owns her own business. So I think she did the shortcut. Yeah, definitely. There. He's actually, now that he's seen all the changes that I've made from, you know, going with uh, working in nonprofits to working in hospitality, which he was always like, why did I put you through college if you're going to work at a restaurant? And yeah. uh, now that he's seen how serious I am about the path that I'm taking, yeah. I think he's like he's really proud like he's like okay what are we doing next and he says we because he's been like my biggest supporter in terms of like financial like loans and stuff like that um and even though he has no idea what the winemaking process is or like owning a business is like he's always like he considers himself to be part of the process and part of the business well and he is yeah he is yeah Yeah, he definitely is oh my gosh i love your dad (laughs) he's amazing i love him so much yeah Well, so you said that um, you were drawn to helping people. As a kid, were you a helpful person? Yeah, definitely. I feel like I was always, uh, you know, like I was an adult as a kid, which has its (laughs) benefits. But at the same time, I feel like it also like made me grow way too fast. And Mm -hmm. I missed things from my childhood that I should have, you know, enjoyed. But um, I always, you know, I always used to hang out with the adults. And, like, if anything was going on, I would, you know, I would just try to, like, come in and help. And even with my mom, like, for a while, my dad was in the States while we were still in Mexico. And so I was basically, like... I would say like her spouse because I would like make decisions with her and help her out at yeah. a very young age. So um, I think for that reason, I I became a very responsible young adult. Um, and, you know, it, it, it made me feel satisfaction knowing that I was doing something for someone. Yeah. When you were in Guadalajara, were you, um, would you say your family was like middle class, upper class? I, um, and I ask you that yeah, just so yeah. you know. Yeah, of course. I'm asking because I would like to know how was your upbringing there different from maybe somebody in the same I don't know, yeah. position here, a child here. Well, we were definitely more like the lower middle class. Mm-hmm. We were not poor. We still, we always had food on our table mm-hmm. and we had a shelter, you know, but um, we, you know, we didn't take like vacations and we, um, we didn't have a car. My dad had a car for a while, but then, you know, like he sold it. So mm-hmm. like, you know, public transportation was something that we were yeah. always accustomed to. Yeah. And um, which is a lot better in Mexico. In yeah. Many ways. So let me just <laughs> yeah. say, I mean, yeah, you can get around. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I would say that in Mexico and also here, like we, you know, like I didn't grow up from, you know, in a family that was, um, you know, that had money or yeah. like, you know, that just had monies in savings, you know, for, for anything that would happen or even for college. Like that was not something that was in my plans, you know, before like my junior year. So, yeah. 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 So do you see a difference between how people grow up in your hometown and here? Uh, This is a pretty wealthy area, even in the nation. I mean, the thing is that I grew up in a city. So I grew up in Guadalajara. It's a huge city. So there's, you can definitely see the difference between the, the classes there. Um, but I think just the pace of life is different. And then also, um, I mean, yeah, I think it, 
I don't, I think that as a child growing up in Mexico, I didn't think of me being in a lower. No, you know? no, no. Like Absolutely I didn't, and I didn't think of things that we were missing. Mm-hmm. I thought that I had everything, and even here, like. I think coming to the States was a huge culture shock from being able to like, like I remember the first thing that I, um, that I thought when I stepped into the home that we were living in was like, oh my God, we have carpets. Yeah. Like, so that's what I'm wondering yeah. about is like, did you, did you suddenly see a difference? Yeah, definitely. Even though like we were still, uh, you know, not like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when we moved here. I still felt, I still felt very fortunate and like, I feel that I had more than I had before. Yeah. Yeah. And interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like, and when, when I moved to the States, I actually, uh, I, you know, was wearing Mm hand-me-downs, you know, and going to like the thrift store and buying clothes, you know, from it. And I still enjoy the thrift store actually. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but you know, I never felt that there was, um, that there was something that I was missing. Yeah. yeah. Which is such a good lesson in, I think, as a parent now, our kids know what they know. They yeah. don't assume they aren't in a position to see a difference between anything. No. And like you said, you never, you were always cared for. You mm-hmm. never felt, you know, deprived of anything. No. And I think a lot of us could stand <laughs> to simplify a lot. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that uh, has a lot to do with the way that my parents, you know, raised us. Like, my dad, even up to this day, like, he says, you know, like, we... We don't need anything. We have everything. Yeah. We we and I mean, if someone else would s- step into our lives, they'll be like, "What? Like, you're living in an apartment and mm-hmm. you don't really own your own car and like you don't mm-hmm. really travel. There's a lot of things that you need." And we're like, "No, like we have health. Yep. We have our family to rely on for anything. We have their love and like you know we're we're healthy. Mm-hmm. So that's all we need." I needed this today. <laughs> I have to tell you, and we're renovating our house in this one section and it's just so easy to get it's so easy for those levels of quote need yeah to you know ratchet up ratchet up ratchet up to the point where I'm staring at tile and I'm like (laughs) oh no this is not right and it's just like please please and I I even before you came today I felt like there's got to be a way to get my heart right with this um so thanks and don't get that. me wrong, like, I also go through those, you know, moments where I'm like, oh, my God, like, like, why can't things be perfect? Mm-hmm. I need this and I need that. And then I just honestly, uh, I'm a phone, phone call away from, you know, mm-hmm. like, being grounded because at any time, like, I have an issue, like, I love my mom. She's a love of my life, you know, like, mm-hmm. I talk to her every day. But my dad is the one person that, like, I talk to him and I tell him what's going on and he's like, everything's okay. Like you have nothing to worry about. I'm like, okay, everything's okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah. My mom is my biggest cheerleader and my husband is my grounding. Like, yeah, he's so chill. It's it's very essential to have those people in your life. Totally. Yeah. So we haven't even talked about wine at all and we need to do that. Okay. So, (laughs) So you were living in the Bay Area. Yes. And somehow you wound up in Paso yeah. with a passion for Gruner Veltliner, which yeah. is like, how in the world did yeah. that happen? Yeah. So what made you move from the Bay Area um, to Paso? So um, I think it was at a point in my life where um, I needed a change. I um, I had recently stepped out of a... Um, 
of a domestic violence abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And I feel that at that point, like, because I was didn't have anything tying me down, um, you know, after living with this person and in a sense of being controlled the whole time, I was like, oh, my God. I can now do anything I want with my life. Mm. So um, I had been working in fine dining for, you know, almost 10 years. And I always had a passion for wine. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, if there's anything I could do, like anything in the world without me having any kind of boundaries, like what is it that I I would like to do? Mm. And the first thing that came to mind was like um, wine. Like I want to learn how to make wine. And so um, I know for someone who like, you know, doesn't have that background or didn't go to school for enology and viticulture, they might think that's crazy. You know, how are you like going to go and learn how to make wine? You're doing something else right now. So, but for me at that point, honestly, like I felt like a butterfly. That's like the, like I felt like I could fly in any direction. I didn't have anything tying me down. Mm. Um, And I felt that at that point in my life, I didn't have to please anyone with, you know, whatever career path I took. So then at that point, I started to um, do anything that anything that I did in my life was revolving about up around wine. Yeah. So I started studying wine. I got a job at a restaurant at a high-end steakhouse where I would make enough money to save up to move. But at the same time, I had access to wine that I couldn't afford. Right. So, um, so I started studying and um, and. About a year after, I uh, I moved to the Central Coast to Paso. Yeah. I, I think that's good advice for anybody who wants to learn about wine is work in a restaurant where you have access to wine. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was selective about where uh, where I wanted to work because I knew that that was going to be essential uh, for me to, like, get my foot in the door with, you know. Because I, I think, like, um, coming into the wine industry, like, I think that, People want to know what kind of background you have and like how much you're willing to like, you know, to to do to actually like learn. So for me, I always I was always like, you know, willing to like step in and volunteer and like learn and shadow people. And so. um, So, yeah, I think that that job was definitely like the big catalyst to move to Paso. Yeah. And in your 10 years of. Were you server or a I was serving, or? and I was also, like, uh, a banquet captain, and okay. I would supervise. So, yeah, I did a little bit of everything. Okay. Yeah. Um, did anybody... I mean, you didn't come from a wine family, you, you know, that which is always kind of a... People get a shortcut to yeah. that, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> not to say that they don't deserve what they wind up with, but that can make things simpler. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did anybody kind of take you under their wing and, and teach you or encourage you or support you? Once I moved to Paso or no, before? No, in fine dining. Um, Somebody who fine, was like, this person wants to learn. Uh, so in fine dining, I think most of the learning was done on my own. Mm-hmm. I was the one seeking out, you know, um, experiences that would bring that uh knowledge my way um we I was lucky enough to be able to have a lot of trainings um in the different restaurants that I you know had um and but I think the one person that actually like like I said was a catalyst for me to move to Paso was my my manager at that point who was the psalm at the restaurant Mm -hmm. she saw my interest and I always used to tell people like oh I'm just here to make money and I'm gonna move because I'm gonna learn how to make wine and she actually is originally from Paso Mm. 
And so at that point, I I wanted to move to Sonoma, and she's like, no, you're not going to Sonoma. Oh, I love this woman. You're going to Paso. And I was like, what is Paso? Where is Paso? <laughs> and um, and she always, like, I remember she, I was like, you're crazy. She's She used to, like, tell everyone, like, I'm taking her with me. She's going to Paso mm-hmm. with me. And I was like, okay, dude, like, let me go check out, like, Paso, and then I'll, I'll let you know. And so she, like, um, she brought me to Paso. She got me a job at Thomas Hill Organics. Oh, I became the wine director there, which oh. allowed me to be able to, like, meet a lot of people in the industry yeah. and also to, like, taste all the wines to be able to be more familiar with Paso and then yeah. um, try to figure out what direction I wanted to take for my own wine path. That's a good spot to learn. I oh, mean, yeah. to get access to all those Oh, wines, yeah, definitely. Sure. It was it was the best experience I could have had, you know, coming to Paso and just trying to learn more about the area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me if this is too tender or if you, <laughs> we don't have the kind of relationship that we can open up on this, but as far as domestic violence yeah. goes, um, how long were you in that relationship? So I was in that relationship for way too long no just kidding (laughs) I was in that relationship for for two years um I you know it was really hard for me to step out of it because of all um all the control he had over me Mm -hmm. um you know just he dictated who I talked to who I didn't talk to where I went you know the color of my hair I actually had to dye my hair black because he was he didn't like people um um, like giving me attention because no, of my hair. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it was, you know, it was a really hard two years of my life. At the, since the beginning, I knew that I shouldn't have, I shouldn't be with this person. Mm-hmm. But um, all the, um, you know, the brainwashing that he did on me, like really um, kept me from seeking help and from leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I was able to finally like, you know, say, like, this has been enough. Like, I can't live another day in this relationship. I stepped out, and um, it wasn't easy. Um, I actually, even after that, like, he kept, you know, harassing me mm-hmm. for months. Um, and and the healing, you know, wasn't easy either. It took me, I mean, I'm still now, you know, trying to... Um, come to the fact that he's not in my life anymore, that he doesn't have control over me, that, you know, anything that I do um, will, you know, just make me, I don't, I don't even know how to explain it, but, um, but yes, I'm, I'm happy that he's out of my life and I will, you know, and a lot of people are like, why, like you we're always independent and I know you and, strike me as so independent, but that's never, yeah. that's never, uh, that never makes people immune. No, yeah. no. I, and, you know, for me, there was a lot of fear involved in being in the relationship and um, the extent of the things that he could do to not just hurt me, but hurt my pet or hurt, you know, friends around me. Because, you know, he used to tell me that, you know, people would him favors and that, mm-hmm. you know, like he could easily just call someone. And like, so those kind of things like kept me, you know, trapped. Yeah. Um, and... Like I said, it took me some time for me to realize that he was not in my life anymore. But um, with the help of, you know, my friends and also uh, my family. And I also reached out for help with, um, you know, uh, to some organizations Mm -hmm. that um, do domestic violence work. And um, after, you know, getting counseling and like 
learning about the cycle of abuse, I was able to, I knew that I had to do something to help other women. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I became a domestic violence advocate um, and developed a, uh, a training program in Spanish. So I actually translated a whole curriculum to Spanish and trained other women to help, you know, uh, survivors to get out of a relationship or just to provide that support that they need when they're in a, an abusive relationship. That is so phenomenal. I don't know about you, but I do some volunteer work in a similar way mm-hmm. where I, um, I take phone calls, texts, and emails from new parents who are struggling with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the joy of my life. <laughs> the joy of my life is to help with something I battled for sure. And so I'm wondering if you feel that full circleness is the thing that that I don't know. I don't want to say it gives it purpose because there is no there is no good reason for domestic yeah, violence to yeah. occur. However, um, being able to function as the person you wish you'd had in that situation, what does that feel oh, like? Oh yeah, so I definitely feel that because of that experience, I was able to switch my life around. And to pursue something bigger. Um, because even before that relationship, I didn't feel that I could do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, now that I am, out, you know, I am mostly healed, I would say um, I have a lot of women who have reached out to me throughout the years and asked me how I did it and, um, and you know, ask me for advice and then tell me that they look up to me because I'm, you know, living up to, like, my full potential and my dream. And so that keeps me going to want to show women that, or and men too, you know, because yeah. there's men that go through uh, domestic violence as well, but um, to show them that um, no matter what, like, there's, a light at the end of the tunnel and that it might be hard but that they'll get there whenever it's the right time because I also don't like to push people to say well if you're going through something you need to leave them now because we don't know what their timing is we don't know what their situation is we don't know what the repercussions of them leaving that person will be only they know when the best time is to leave that relationship so just being there you know and hearing them out it's like you know I think it's gives them a lot of help you know, than I could ever imagine. So for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, that's, I'm sure somebody listening to this will either have gone through something like that, mm-hmm. is going through something like that or knows someone. Who's yeah. And, and I would say like, if you know someone who's going through it, I think the best thing that you could do, it's definitely not be judgmental about mm-hmm. what it's going through you know what that person's going through because like I said you don't know what that person is facing and the best thing you can do is you know be be an ear just be there for them you know whatever they need no matter how many times they say they're gonna leave that person like you just gotta be there for them yeah for sure let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. 
Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Well, so you moved to Paso. Mm-hmm. Um, did your uh, did that sommelier in um, the Bay Area? She help hook you up with anything? Like, did she make any connections? Yeah, well, definitely that job at Thomas Hill Organics. Yeah, okay. yeah because she actually uh, came back and was working at the restaurant at the time that I came back, also. And I was there for you know a while for about. Two year, two and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, then after that, uh, I started my job where I'm currently working at at uh, Seven Ox and Estate Wines. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Okay. So, in the process of so you want to make wine. Mm-hmm. What was the the big leap you had to make? I mean, maybe it was financial. Maybe it sounds like your head was already in the game. Yeah. Um, or asking for, you know, what was the big leap that you were like, oh, I don't know if I should do it now? Um, I think, like, getting over the fact that I didn't, you know, I didn't actually study enology was one of the things because, um, from like, I felt like I had to prove myself that, you know, that I'm, I'm good enough to learn how to, yeah. how to do this even though I didn't go to school uh, for it. So um, I'm asking for help. You know, and mentorship, that was one thing because I feel like that was essential to, like, me being successful with what I had been doing. Mm. And I knew that I had to ask the right people. So, um, yeah, um, I'm always very self-conscious of not being good enough, Mm. you know, at doing things no matter matter how good I am. (laughs) No matter how good I am. Like, I love, you know, hospitality, but sometimes I'm like, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Mm -hmm. So um, I think the big leap was definitely, um, you know, Asking for help and trying to prove myself. Yeah. So who did you ask for help? Uh, there's a few people that I asked for help here and there that uh, guided me in different ways. Um, Riley, Riley Hubbard. Ah, she was on this season. Oh, She's no way. <laughs> oh, my God. She is the coolest. She is so cool. So um, hmm. so I have a lot of respect for her. So, like, I asked her initially, what is it what I'm going to need for my first harvest? Yeah. And then I asked, you know... Like, even the winemaker where I work at, Bastien Leduc, I asked them, you know, like, what kind of things am I going to be looking for? Mm-hmm. And then, finally, my um, my mentor, who has been guiding me throughout the whole process, is Tyler Russell oh, yes. uh, from Cordonnell. Yeah. So, he is, he's amazing. He's been um, super open about teaching me anything that he knows. Yeah. He's been supportive in any way possible. Um, he, uh, he's been an inspiration for me because he also didn't study enology. So, um, I think that seeing how successful he is and how, um, he's setting his own trends and doing whatever he wants to do gives me, um, kind of like a push to like not be afraid of trying something different trying yeah. something new and just like you know just going for it for sure yeah. and i mean to make a gruner in paso never having made wine before yeah yeah i that is not like a that's not a a move it's not like a traditional move no. i wouldn't no. say yeah 
Yeah. yeah. So what made you, why do you love Gruner so much? So um, I am a huge, huge, huge um, fan, lover, you know, aficionado of obscure varietals. Yeah. You know, anything that I could find that I haven't tried before or like that it's not common, uh, that's something that I want to be drinking. I want to be sharing with people. I want to be um, educating people about it. And that's a big thing um, about the the line of wines that I'm producing. Like I, I'm adding in an educational component to the winemaking or the, the wine drinking experience. So uh, Gruner, I had actually tried a a few times mm-hmm. I didn't have much, much, uh, as much experience with it as you know as you might think but I've had it a few times mm-hmm. and so when it came time for me to make wine um, I was originally going to make a um, a pickle blanc Oh gosh, um, talk about yeah, yeah, obscure. But but Paso has yeah, it has pickbull. Yeah, Paso has pickbull, and so um, something happened, and and the um, the fruit was there wasn't enough fruit for me, so I had to like switch gears at the last minute in the middle of harvest and I was like well I need to either not make wine this year or find something else so um, I actually talked to my sister about it and I was like I was so sad on Pickpoo for like two years and I was devastated and she was like look people are going to buy your wine not because you're making Pickpoo because I don't even know what Pickpool is. And the people that you're going to sell the wine to, they don't know what Pickpool is. 80% of people listening to this won't know what it is. Exactly. So she was like, they're going to buy the wine because of you, because you're making it, because, you know, because they want to support you. So I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to find something else. So I reached out to a friend um, who works for a winery that produces Gruner, Mm -hmm. because Gruner was already in my radar. And so she referred me to a grower, and so I talked to the grower, and they had um, more, you know, available, and I was able to set up a contract and, you know, choose the date that I had that I wanted to be picked, and uh, you know, work out all the uh, logistics of like picking it up, and you know, where I'm gonna press it, and the whole process, any anything, you know, everything that has to do with the winemaking experience. Whereas before with the pick bowl, I was gonna get it as juice already pressed, already oh. picked, and I was just going to put it in barrels and ferment it. So not as much control, no. not as many decisions. Was that intimidating? No. It was very intimidating, but at the same time time it I feel like it definitely empowered me yeah. to feel that I was fully in control of everything yeah. um it was me you know like producing it from like vine yeah. to from vine to bottle basically yeah. um and I'm so thankful for that experience because it gave me the tools that I needed to um to know you know, in terms of what to do for the next vintage, which yeah. is what I did um in 2020 yeah yeah and I should I should um Clarify, I said Gruner in Paso. This is Edna Valley Fruit. Yeah, it's which Edna makes Valley Fruit. A lot of sense. Yes, but uh, it's made in Paso. Right. Okay, got it. Because <laughs> that's yeah. an important for people who know and love wine. They'd be like, Gruner in Paso. Yeah. Although, I mean, maybe somebody does grow that, but it's not yeah. known for that. Yeah, for it's sure. not known. It's uh, usually Gruner uh, grows best in, in uh, cold, cool weather. Right. So that's the reason why Edna Valley is just a perfect place for it to grow. Yeah. And there's yeah. a history of. Um, Gruner's a German, Austrian variety, Austrian, right? yeah. That's so, um, 
But there's a history of Gruner in the Edna Valley, too. Yeah. So you kind of probably also a little bit stand on the shoulders of people who have made it before. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a few people in, in Edna that are producing amazing Gruners. So, yeah. I mean, for me be, to be able to produce one that, I mean, you know, I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah. Um, um, given the circumstances of, you know, the time that I picked it and, you know, just being yeah. a last minute decision. But um, I'm, like I said, I'm very proud of, you know, being able to have produced it. And um, now in 2020, I also made Gruner. Okay. So um, this is your, this is so your my first, first is 2019, yeah. which yeah. by the way, um, <laughs> Nancy said, <laughs> I had a couple bottles left, <laughs> and I thought I'd bring you one, and I'm like, you had two bottles left, and then I look at the back, and it says there were only 50 cases. Yeah. I feel like I'm holding yeah. <laughs> a gold no, brick. Thank I, you. Um, I was I was sad when it happened, but now I'm like, it's a blessing. I actually sold out within like eight days after oh releasing gosh. it. So um, I was sold out, and then I didn't have any for the rest of the year, and I was like, I'm going to keep these two cases to drink like a bottle, like here and there with people that didn't actually get to buy it so I've been able to do that and then you know just like for special occasions you know for like Thanksgiving I had one with my family or you know things like that so um yeah um the back yes can you tell me what the back can you say that yeah so um I am big on affirmations Mm -hmm. I think that affirmations is something that has driven my success Mm -hmm. I you know I believe in energy and whatever you put out in the universe is what you're going to receive Mm -hmm. so in each of my bottles I'm putting a Spanish affirmation because I also want it to you know I think the Spanish language is so romantic Mm -hmm. and like it just Mm -hmm so beautiful that um and it's part of you know who i am that i wanted to put that there so um it says that for the 2019 gruner the back of the label reads soy abundancia soy magia el universo conspira a mi favor Mm -hmm. which means i am abundance i am magic the universe conspires in my favor oh my god which is basically what happened with me, you know, oh. you know, I think that the universe has a very, uh, has a lot of love for me and it has allowed me to continue to make my dream happen. So that is yeah. so beautiful. Thank it's you. Very, it has been very rare on this podcast that I would get emotional oh. and that is the most beautiful thing. Thank you so much. And what Thank an you. amazing thing to believe. It's mm-hmm. one thing. To put it on there because um, you want to believe it. But I get the sense from you that this is true for you. Oh, yeah, definitely. I Like I said, I'm very fortunate to like be where I am to be able to uh, not only be making my dreams happen, but to also inspire other people to mm-hmm. aim for something that they don't think that it's actually possible, but to believe in them themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I continue to believe it, and I know that... Uh, I'm going to continue to do this for, you know, as long as I'm allowed to. Um, And, you know, I'm happy to just spread the love and believe in yourself. Fantastic. So for 2020, are you making more? Yes. Okay. How much more? Um, So the Gruner, I double production. Mm -hmm. um, So I made 100 cases. And then I also made an Albariño. From from Edna Valley as well, from the same vineyard, the uh, old Paragon Vineyard. Yeah. And then um, I made a Verdejo from Paso Robles. Oh, my gosh. You love those obscure whites. Yes, I do. I definitely (laughs) do. You know, and I feel like for a lot of people, um, um, you know, just trying something different um, and just the wine experience in general it's such a sensory experience. Yeah. Then when you, when you combine flavors that you haven't had 
with knowledge about that grape varietal, it adds so much um, value to the experience. Absolutely. Where like you're not just drinking wine, you're learning something new. And yeah. you're, you know, I feel like, um, and that's something that I do with my food too, you know, mm -hmm. food and wine for me, it's like, when I tried something that I haven't had before, yeah. it just kind of opens the door to a lot of other things that are out there that I haven't tried. So like being, you know, open and adventurous about what to drink or what to eat or how to even pair things that you might not think that are going to be, um, you know, like harmonious, I would say. Or like, not traditionally done. Exactly. It's, it's not done. Well, yeah. So yeah. And that's uh, one of the things that I do with my wines. Um, I love cooking. Mm -hmm. I love cooking Mexican food. Uh, I love using my mom's recipes. So I have been pairing my wine um, with things that are, you know, you wouldn't think that would be like fancy enough or like, you know, just like gourmet or whatever. Yeah. Um, like I paired it with, I paired the Gruner with pozole, which is, um, it's one of my favorite dishes that my mom makes. She actually makes it, um, for my birthday every year because I asked her to, it's like mm -hmm. a, and pozole, it's, you know, one of those, um, dishes that people make for celebrations for birthdays yeah. for holidays so um i paired it with uh, my pozole mm. uh, i paired it with ceviche wait backing up so pozole can yeah. have really um i've made i think i've made like shortcut versions of uh -huh. it before but we're talking it's hominy and tomatillo i think also. uh so uh it's uh this is I, I make my pozole with, uh, it's a red pozole, so I make oh, okay. it with dry red peppers. Yeah. So uh, I usually use guajillo and um, what's the other? Arbol? Uh, no. I, I, I don't it's know okay. why I can't remember <laughs> right now. But I use two different kinds of peppers, yeah. hominy, I use pork mm -hmm. um, and, you know, garlic and stuff like that. So it's, um, it, I mean, there's a lot of flavor. The dry peppers give For it a sure. lot of flavors. Yeah. For sure. And I'm just, the reason I bring that up is we talk a lot about having whites like this mm -hmm. with Thai food, with sushi. Yeah. And uh, not sushi so much uh, spicy, but like Thai food, Vietnamese. Yeah. Um, these are full flavored. Yeah. Spice centered mm -hmm. cuisines. Yeah. And so why not? do the same yeah, with many exactly. Mexican dishes. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it stands to reason that that would work. Yeah, definitely. But people don't think of it. It's not a, a no-brainer. Yeah, I definitely always urge people to, like, you know, try different things because you don't know if they're going to work out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to ask you for that, Basola. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was also just thinking as you were talking that trying something new I mean, especially around here, we have our we have our regional palate. Yeah. So you know, when you're up in Paso, it's a lot of Rhones, it's Cab, it's mm -hmm. um, and then and then down in Edna, it's Chardonnay and Pinot. You know, very very much that, and those obscure whites yeah. growing mm -hmm. and growing. Santa Barbara County, you know, quite a bit of Rhone, but also a lot of Chardonnay and Pinot. Yes. So we grow to become accustomed our palate narrows and narrows and narrows as we drink mm -hmm. more of the central coast wine yeah to be surprised by something mm -hmm. is a real gift around here and i don't mean to disparage anybody who makes Rhone cab yeah you know burgundies i not at all mm -mm. there is such craft to that and such a heritage yeah. of that but to be surprised is a real gift and um i think anybody who tastes any gruner yeah. is going to be surprised um, 
by how it's so sharp and aromatic mm-hmm. and so food. I hate the term food friendly, but it's um, it almost needs. I call food. it food versatile. <laughs> For sure. I mean, you could sip it without food, sure, yeah. but but something with that kind of acidity um, and bite is always going to be great. With, yeah, with definitely. Food. Yeah. And I think there's also different styles of, you know, like different winemakers could use different methods. Absolutely. Too, you know, Absolutely. so um, they're all very different. But I think it's really awesome to see what the potential of the varietal is. Yeah. For me, honestly, I didn't know what it was going to turn out like because... I didn't actually follow a recipe of any other winemaker that makes Gruner. I just, you know, I was like, okay, how do you make white wine? And then I, I, you know, I did the things that were supposed to be done. And then um, for the second year that I made wine for 2020, people are like, why are you stirring the wine every day? Like, you know, you don't have to do that, right? I was like, I thought I was supposed to, no one told me I wasn't. So, uh, I mean, it's really awesome to like see how um, different a white a wine might be depending on what you do, you yeah, know, with yeah. it, which is little decisions, yeah, and little choices. Yeah, definitely the kind of yeast that you use when you decide to pick the grapes. Uh, you know, if you're gonna rack it or you know allow it to age on the lees. Mm-hmm. You know, all those little decisions. Um, I think that are gonna definitely define what the wine is. And for me, like it's so empowering and also like really awesome to to like make all those decisions and like be like, you know, this wine turned out this way because that's what I decided to do. Mm -hmm. Um, So, which is something really awesome. I had someone ask me uh, recently, they're like, oh, okay, so you have your brand, your your wine brand, like who's making the wine for you? And I was like, "Uh, (laughs) me? (laughs) Like no one's doing the work for me. Like I'm doing it, I'm doing it all, which is like I said, something that it's like such an amazing satisfaction and also has allowed me to be creative. Like I didn't, Ever, I never thought that I was, you know, artistic enough or creative enough or, you know, anything like that. And to be able to, like, make all the decisions from, like, what bottle I wanted, I want to yeah. use to, like, the cork to the artwork, you know, the even, artwork. like, that affirmation in the back, which, like, makes it more me, yes, you know, like, personal, that's who sure. I am. That is one, what I want people to relate the wine to, so... Um, yeah, it's been such an amazing experience. And with the information you shared with me about somebody trying to control your hair color, yeah, I love that the label has you. <laughs> Thank you. Very happily yeah. with the hair color you want. It's, it's got yes, that beautiful definitely. copper red. I'm, on I'm not letting this hair color go. <laughs> definitely not. Not <laughs> well, anymore. Not again. <laughs> you're talking. We were saying that little decisions make a big difference with the resulting wine, and I know you're just at the beginning of discovering what those decisions yeah. might mm-hmm. be. But it reminds me of, you know, when when um, people in defense talk about launching a missile mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, in space exploration, launching something, you prepare for like a decade for a launch and you are doing all of the math down, you know, granular, tiny, 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 because when that thing shoots off, yeah. little decisions at the beginning have big results. Yeah, And so with you, I mean, it's almost like holding a bow and arrow. You're making all these little positioning decisions in hope of hitting the target. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I honestly didn't, um, like, I, you know, I I, I don't think I had, like, a picture of what I thought this all was going to result in. I think that I was just, like, going with the flow and, you know, just making it work. And my dad always told me, like, 
don't try to treat this like a business yet. Like have it be like a passion project and then mm. figure out if that's something you want to do. So that really helped me out with not being so cut up, uh, cut up on like the little decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that I see what it turned out, turned out like, I think I can make better educated decisions in terms of what to do next time around. For sure. Um, but you're right. Like I think uh, that gives you power to like kind of like know exactly what you need to do. Yeah. 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 At the moment, I'm, I'm taking actually some like, you know, going back to the whole thing about business. I'm actually t- taking an entrepreneurial class. Yeah, Dad. So like, <laughs> so like, and so now he's like, yeah, take all the classes you need, and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm taking that class. I'm taking a quick QuickBooks class, mm-hmm. so that I could know exactly what I need to do in the. Tr- side of business you know to like be more educated and to be more successful so yeah, yeah. that can only be good you know yeah. that can yeah, only definitely. help yeah For yeah sure. <laughs> um oh, such a great conversation and I'm so thankful that um I don't know that you took a chance yeah I, I and I think your dad is right about um not treating it like a business yet yeah that's also the responsible thing to do is you know <laughs> treat it like a you're you're exploring something yeah. Um, if you can make some of your capital back, mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Um, which which reminds me, do you are you at Paso Robles Wine Services or where do you do your work? Uh, my friend's winery. Oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, friend's okay. winery. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I, I mean, I have a job. Yeah. I have like nine hundred jobs. Um, <laughs> but the podcast was something I wanted to. I had written for so many other people, and. I wanted to own something that I could control. Mm-hmm. And when I launched it and, um, you know, said, yeah, it's going to be about Central Coast uh, people who have anything to do with wine and food, including people who eat it <laughs> yeah. and drink it, um, who think about it. Um, and then it grew into Californians who eat, drink, think, and make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot of kind of blank stares like, what? There Are there even enough people to to talk to are you about kidding that? me <laughs> and it's like, amazing here we are you know you're my 80th interview oh my god <laughs> I know and I have lists upon lists upon lists of people that are worth asking and who surprise yeah. me every time and owning this thing I have not treated it like a business but it has given back so so much yeah. um and like you I think it's about people yeah. and so Definitely. um yeah I'm grateful we feel the same way about that. (laughs) So I ask everyone, if this were the last day of your life, you knew it and you were excited to celebrate, what would you eat, what would you drink, and who would you be with? Um, Oh, man. So I definitely would, I, I mean, it has to be my mom's food. It has to be, you know, I'm, yeah, her pozole. (laughs) That's like so every great. time yeah so I would I would have my mom's pozole um and I mean I don't you know I don't want to say this because it's my wine but I mean like drinking my wine Absolutely. with my family it's like like to me it's like such an accomplishment not just for me but also as a team effort that they you know that we all have been part of with my family because they have seen me struggle and they have seen me you know get to where I am so it would be the pozole with the gruner and then with my family and my boyfriend and I think that 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 you know and at my mom's house that would be like I, I know, wouldn't I choose any other place like yeah yeah at my mom's house definitely like that would be the best place for me to actually 
you know, celebrate the last day that I'm alive. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love that. Thank you so much, Nancy. Thank Lowe. you so I appreciate much. you being here. Thank you. Listeners, I hope you've learned something, felt something, or been pushed to taste something new during this episode. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. If you want to learn more about Consumed or any of my guests, go to letsgetconsumed.com. Very special thanks to my stalwart editor, Chris Lambert, who helps me out when he's not working on his own project, the wildly popular true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. There's new movement in that story, by the way, so look the podcast up right now. Also, if you like Consumed and think more people should hear it, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. That always gives me a thrill. Okay, until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis.